0: and welcome to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today I'm talking with John Fesco, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Academic Dean at Westminster Seminary, California. John is author of Diversity in the Reformed Tradition, Last Things First, Justification, Understanding the Classic Reformed Doctrine, and he was co-editor of The Law Is Not a Faith. His most recent book is The Rule of Love, Broken, Fulfilled, and Applied. These titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, edu slash bookstore. Hi, John, and welcome to Office Hours.
1: Scott, it's good to be here with you.
0: Well, uh, welcome to Westminster Seminary, California. Welcome to Southern California. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing since, uh, before you came here.
1: Sure. Uh, I uh, was originally, obviously, in seminary, like most ministers, and upon my graduation, I went to study uh, for my doctorate at the University of Aberdeen, and shortly thereafter, upon the completion of that, I became a pastor, a church planner in uh, the greater Atlanta area, and I planted a church with a local Orthodox Presbyterian Church congregation, and more or less, I've been, I was pastoring that congregation both as a mission work and then later as a particular congregation uh, for about the last uh, 10 years or so. And so uh, basically, I was a full-time pastor, but also I was a part-time uh, professor of systematics uh, at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta for about the last eight years. So at least prior to then, this is, that's what I've been doing.
0: So really, you've just been hanging out, wasting your time. Right?
1: <laughs> that's right. That, that's what you're telling us? <laughs> fiddling, fiddling, uh, fiddling around and twiddling my thumbs, yes. <laughs> All right.
0: Well, uh, you have an
1: interesting story, and,
0: and like uh, a number of us on the faculty, you, um, you haven't always embraced the Reformed faith. How was it that you came to uh, embrace the Reformed faith?
1: Sure. Well, at my uh, Baptist church at the time, I had uh, two ministers who were Reformed. In fact, one of them was a um, a former Presbyterian. So I don't know if we want to say once Reformed, then became particular Baptist, or however the case may be, but they both uh, encouraged me and taught me uh, the doctrines of grace. At the time, I didn't quite grasp them. It wasn't until coming into contact with someone of the likes of R.C. Sproul through some of his books. And in particular, when I was in seminary, I was a janitor and I would work four hours a night. And during those shifts in the evening, I would listen to Sproul tapes. And before you know it, after about a year, maybe three, four evenings a night, listening two to three hours a night, I found myself uh, figuring out that I was perhaps uh, more Presbyterian and Reformed than I realized. And so upon my graduation, I started looking for a Reformed church to which I could belong, and that ended up being the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Now,
0: and where were you going to seminary at the time?
1: At the time, I was going to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas.
0: Okay. And how did that go as you were—I mean, you make it sound very peaceful, you're <laughs> listening to, to tapes, you're, you're, you know, you're doing your job, and it just, you know— Was it like uh, falling asleep and waking up, or was it a little more of a struggle?
1: No, I think it was, at least for me personally, it was a a very um, uh, more or less peaceful process in that when I first had struggles over the issues, I had, uh, again, one of those ministerial uh, friends who told me, go ahead, and if you have uh, struggles with the uh, sovereignty of God, I want you to read Romans 9 for the next day, uh, for the next uh, 30 days. And uh, if after that, every day reading that, you still have questions, come to me and talk to me. And after about the first two days, I think, I finally said, okay, uh, uncle, uh, you're sovereign, I'm not. (laughs) And uh, from there, I think it was relatively peaceful for me and more so like being like a kid in a candy store reading the works of Calvin and Edwards and Burkhoff and all of these different things, obviously on the side because uh, try as they might, my professors were none too happy with uh, my, I guess, foray and uh, exploration and really embracing of the Reformed faith.
0: Now, John, um, how did you become conscious of your call to pastoral ministry?
1: Well, that's a good question in that I know it's perhaps different or perhaps not always different for every individual, but I think from the earliest days of my um, youth. I sensed some sort of call to the pastoral ministry, at least in the Baptist context. They had what they called Youth Sunday, which I know perhaps doesn't occur in too many Reformed churches well, for good for good reason.
0: Well, we do that every Sunday. <laughs> That's
1: right. There you go. We, we hope. <laughs> but uh, I can remember uh, being asked to, and I'll put this in, in quotes, deliver the sermon, uh, and so I exhorted. Uh, and I think from there, at the time I was about 16 years old, and I really sensed a call at that point then, but I wasn't too keen on the idea, thinking that uh, I would be sent off to uh, an obscure mission field and uh, n- never to be seen again. But I think slowly but surely, uh, I, I continued to struggle with that sense of calling, and it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I finally realized that I really needed to pursue a seminary education. And not only that, but uh, received not only internal confirmation of that call, but also external confirmation from those around me, whether it be ministers that I knew, uh, people in the church, or perhaps family, uh, who also uh, confirmed that, yes, that was uh, the direction that I should be heading. So I went to seminary in my early 20s, and here I am now. <laughs> Let's back
0: up even a little further. Sure. Where, um, How were you raised? What, what was the kind of upbringing... Uh, uh, you had as a child? Were you raised in the church? Mm. Were you, you were taught the scriptures?
1: Yeah, I can remember being taught the scriptures from the earliest of days. I can—I uh, really never knew a day apart from Christ. In fact, I was baptized in the PCUSA uh, before the split in 1970, and at the time, uh, the pastor for my parents was a conservative, and he told them to uh, keep an eye out uh, for uh, coming things that were developing later on, I, obviously the formation of the PCA. Uh, But I think uh, my parents ended up taking us to wherever there was strong preaching, uh, which didn't mean that that was always in Reformed circles. Sometimes we went to uh, EV-free churches or to a Baptist church here and there. But uh, in the end, uh, I never knew a day apart from Christ, and my parents always inculcated me in the faith. And so for that, I'm really grateful. I think in one sense, to me, it seems like a very um, mundane uh, childhood. But the more and more that I meet people and i you know find other people 's stories, I realize it 's not really mundane at all, but it 's a real blessing uh, to be raised in a in a covenant home and to be raised in the faith so uh, that 's something for which i 'm really grateful
0: listening to you i 'm trying to track down where you might be from geographically, but i, I can 't tell from from your uh, accent you don 't to me you don 't sound like you have one Where, where were you raised
1: Oh goodness uh, all over
0: um, maybe that 's why you don 't seem to yeah, hurt.
1: my dad at the time, and he was now at least as a matter of historical fact, was a IBM employee for thirty seven years oh. and what that means is that we moved around a lot, at least in the early days. And so I was born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, lived in Augusta, Georgia for a little bit. We moved out to the West Coast. I live in three different cities in the Bay Area and the West Coast. Then we moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where I was bound and determined not to pick up a Southern accent. And my brother and I, in fact, I think we made a pact that we wouldn't. And then from there, went to school in Fort Worth, Texas, and then later Scotland, and so now I'm here back on the West Coast, so I think I have a rather accentless uh, speech, I hope. I, I don't know.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, it's hard to tell it. Uh, whatever, however we speak, that's what seems normal to us. <laughs> what, um, tell us a little bit about your uh, your doctoral work you, uh, that uh, you conducted in, in Aberdeen, is that right?
1: Yes, at the University of Aberdeen. Uh, one of the things that I had done a lot of is a lot of required reading in my seminary uh, education. I received a Master of Arts in uh, theolog- in Theological Studies uh, from a Southwestern Baptist, and uh, that was a very helpful degree. It let me really learn a lot, but at the same time, I, I really wanted to get more into primary source research, which is something that a European uh, you know, graduate education lends itself towards. And so, when I went to uh, the University of Aberdeen, I met with my supervisor, and he said, "Well." Uh, more or less, what are your interests? And I had told him before on a previous occasion through correspondence that it was really Calvin and the doctrine of election. And so uh, he said, all right, well, let's start researching that area. I want four essays. I want an essay on Calvin's doctrine of election, the Synod of Dort on election, the Westminster Standards on election, and then, of course, a fourth essay on the rise of federal theology. And I said, all right, well, when do you want those essays? He said, oh, about a month apart. And so I submitted them, and with each submission I s- proposed a thesis topic and, a th- and gave them a thesis outline. And slowly but surely, or perhaps maybe rapidly, depending on how you look at it, I had a, a thesis by about the third month uh, with uh, studying the-, the lapsarian question and comparing Calvin Dort and Westminster on, on the issue of lapsarianism.
0: I, I, as you were recounting the various chapters, I was, I'm thinking... Um, That sounds a lot like his doctoral dissertation. So really within a few months you you had the outline of what would become your doctoral work.
1: Yes, that's that's basically it. it. It's very, I don't know, I guess the only way to say it really is it's very providential the way it all worked out so that really by the time that I started working on the, on the dissertation itself per se, it was very relatively quickly, quick into my uh, studies that I had an outline. And I think a little bit before that, all I had to do was do some work on Augustine and, uh, and that I think basically ended up being more or less the overall outline of the whole thesis. And so it kind of really came together very quickly. I, I think what happened is I got very scared because The first day that I got there, I ran into a post-grad student who was introducing me around, and I happened to ask, well, how long have you been here? (laughs) And the person said, oh, seven years. And I thought, oh, my word. Yeah. I can't. I can't be here for seven years. So I was. I wanted to make sure I was very uh, diligent to to, to work uh, hard. So well, that's-
0: you, you may have set the all time record, though, in <laughs> sketching out your dissertation within the first six months. Is it the case that my recollection is that you have uh, experience at other schools besides uh, Southwestern? and Aberdeen.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of my undergrad, or? I don't know. I had an idea
0: that you went to Dallas.
1: Oh, no, no, no. Never went to Dallas. Oh, okay, you have that Dallas look about
0: you. <laughs> You're very clean cut, and I ex- <laughs> I expect to see you in a blue blazer. So. That's,
1: that's probably the IBM in me. Uh, my dad, for the longest time, I can remember, he would come home wearing 40-pound wingtips, uh, a white starched uh, shirt with a crisp power tie, and a dark gray suit. And that's all I knew my dad. And I remember the big shock when he came home one day, and it was Casual Friday. My world was uh, turned upside down. I, I didn't know who he was.
0: <laughs> who is this strange man coming into my house? That's right. Well, my grandfather worked for IBM for uh, 30-some years. Okay. And, so, uh, I, I, uh, and it, you know, I, it's funny. I'd never thought about that and how that must have influenced my dad. Sure. And uh, whether that—I don't think it got passed down. Here I am sitting in casual clothes. I'm sure <laughs> my grandfather would be most unhappy. <laughs> Um, my my dad uh, to this day refers to jeans as dungarees.
1: Right. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, I can remember that word for sure.
0: <laughs> now, uh, tell us a, a little bit, uh, and I'm I'm curious because uh, you you come to us essentially, you know having been, having been teaching uh, part time, mm-hmm. but really uh, engaged in full time pastoral ministry. So you, sure. So your vocation. Uh, continues to be that uh, of a, a minister uh, of the gospel, but now you're, you're going to be teaching in a seminary full-time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, talk about your experience uh, in, in pastoral ministry, how that affects you, how that has shaped you, uh, and, and what that does for you as you come here to teach at Westminster Seminary, California.
1: Sure. I can remember when I was pursuing my doctoral studies that I really had a desire to teach, which ultimately was why I was pursuing that, that uh, Ph.D., But at the same time, as I began to study uh, the Reformers in depth, I really began to see that they were all, uh, or at least a good portion of them, were both pastors and professors, uh, the likes of Calvin or Luther or Beza, you name them. And so uh, I really prayed about it and said, okay, and determined uh, that I was prepared to take whatever came first, whether it be a call to teach or whether it be a call to be a pastor. And that call for the pastorate came up, and I think in many respects, I know that everybody has a different path, and the Lord uh, sets before them the things that they need to do, but I'm really grateful for the things that the Lord set before me in terms of my pastoral ministry, because uh, in some respect, I think it's, it's, it's important to have... The men that teach future ministers, uh, they need to have some exposure uh, to uh, the the ministry to which uh, they're being called or some exposure to the ministry for which they're training these men. And so I think I certainly have seen a lot, at least in the 10 years that I was in the pastorate, uh, things that I often scratched my head and wondered, what in the world, why, oh Lord, are you putting such challenging things before me? I, I can remember within the first two weeks having to deal with a matter related to someone who had been uh, suspended from the Lord's Supper and having to tell that person, no, you you cannot take the Lord's Supper until you clear these these matters up, and I'll be happy to help you with that. Or marital problems for people in the church. And and I can remember asking at the time my former intern supervisor, uh, pastor, an OP pastor there in the Atlanta area, asking him advice. And one of the things I regularly would hear from him is, boy, in my 35 years of ministry, I've never encountered a situation like this. (laughs) So I thought, oh, what have I gotten myself into? Um, I mean, I say it all in jest, but um, in many respects, I, I told a friend of mine at, at a graduation ceremony after being in the ministry for a few years. He says, "Oh, you're a pastor now," and he said, "Have you started drinking? Because if you haven't, you, I'm sure you <laughs> s- you soon will." And and while it's said in jest, I think there's there's a lot to be said for that. In that uh, there is often I've I've said this, and I'm sure somebody else has said it before. But pastors and and the elders on the session or the consistory. Um, are often the spiritual garbage men of the church, and that they are often confronted with uh, messy situations that they have to do their best to bring word and sacrament to bear upon uh, counseling and the uh, advice and and, and instruction that they give to their churches. And I think that over the years, those circumstances and situations, I, I hope, are uh, applied theology that I can bring to the classroom to to help these men that are preparing for the ministry uh, to uh, understand what demands they'll have upon them and to understand how best to apply the Word, and, and hopefully that can be s- in some way helpful to them.
0: There are two kinds of elders, in my experience, those <laughs> who have been to a consistory meeting and those who haven't. <laughs> and and uh, the right. first time you—or a session meeting, the first time uh, an elder comes to a, a session meeting. Uh, I've often thought we need a sort of debriefing right. uh, process for the, for first time elders because they <laughs> they always get the same look in their eyes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I I had no idea that right. <laughs> what you people are dealing with. Why did you elect me to this? Right. Um, oh, now, on a more in a more serious vein, mm-hmm. uh, as you you entered into the pastorate, uh, as either as you were finishing or after you had finished. Uh, a good deal of study you, you know uh, you had the time in seminary and then the time doing your your doctoral work. Mm-hmm. How did your research into the history and theology of the reformed churches? How did that uh, color effect influence the way you conducted your pastoral ministry
1: mm. that 's uh, a question I think that 's best answered, perhaps I guess from my experience in working with my session, and that oftentimes. I would have situations, whether they be pastoral counseling issues or church discipline issues, or um, perhaps people would want to have things done at the church a certain way. And I was ever grateful uh, for the biblical polity that we see in the scriptures, the whole idea that you have either the session or the consistory. And the idea is is that the pastor is not the only person that is responsible there, and that I was able— and was able to rule uh the church with the elders uh as a as a group as a as a session so in other words I was not the lone person there holding the bag so to speak but that I could go to these men who had uh shepherded uh the people of the of of the church uh for many years and ask them their advice ask them their counsel so that uh, I really uh, especially coming from a baptist context where it's large in part it's the pastor who who runs things uh, it was very refreshing for me to be able to 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 get up next to some of these men and to work out some of these issues, to pick their minds, to pray with them, and to uh, to counsel them. But another thing I think that was ultimately crucial for me is particularly the reformed emphasis uh, upon uh, the Word of God. Uh, I think a, a passage that's perhaps underappreciated uh, in the greater church. Is one that comes from Heinrich Bullinger's uh, Second Helvetic Confession that says that uh, that God speaks to His people not only uh, through uh, the reading of the Word but also through the preaching of the Word when it's applied by the Spirit, and that for me I think was uh, crucial in the formation of my uh, my ministry of preaching, if you will, or my theology of preaching, and the ideas that I rem- I would remember and tell- remind myself that the bulk of my pastoral counseling, the bulk of my uh, Uh, ministry occurred not in my study in my office, if you will, uh, as I would talk with one-on-one with individuals, but from the pulpit, where the Word of God would come down not only as it was read, but also as I would preach it or as uh, the session and I would administer the visible Word in the sacraments. And I would constantly pray that uh, the Lord would uh, conform the church to the image of Christ through those means. Uh, so it's not so much counseling as, as important that, as that can be, and is an important element of a ministry that it is, but chiefly my, I don't know, my uh, my counseling, I guess, chiefly came through the preaching of the Word. So I think those those two elements, polity and a theology of preaching, uh, are really formative upon my, my ministry. I, I'm sure there are many other points, but at least those two come to mind right now.
0: One of the things that is striking as as I sort of review your your career to date is the uh, the amount of material you mm-hmm. have written and published, and we'll we'll come back to the things you have on the burner now sure. or things you're working on. How, as a pastor, with all of the demands made on pastors, mm-hmm. the visitation, uh, preaching twice mm-hmm. every Lord's Day, mm-hmm. uh, session meetings, catechism, mm-hmm. and uh, and counseling and so forth, all the things that that all pastors face. How did you uh, balance all of that Mm -hmm. with your commitment to writing? And what is it that fueled your commitment to write?
1: Sure. I think that a couple of things come to mind. First, uh, good time management. Uh, I remember I would set myself uh, to—I would usually take Mondays off. Uh, And then Tuesdays was my a.m. sermon day. Wednesday was my p.m. sermon day. And especially on Tuesdays, I blocked that out for sermon prep. I didn't take any appointments. Uh, And then I would reserve appointments for Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, or Saturday in the evenings, or whatever the case may be. And then typically on Thursdays and Fridays, I would reserve that for um, what I would basically call research and writing. And it was during those times that I was preparing uh, lectures uh, for Sunday school. And I would typically, as you said, preach twice on Sundays, would also lecture for an hour on Sundays for Sunday school. And uh, my my philosophy has always been, ideally, prepare once and prepare deep. Uh, and I've told my students this a number of times over the years as they've asked, I think, similar questions in that I always tell them, if you prepare very shallow, then there's going to be a limited venue as to where you can use that material perhaps in the Sunday school hour or whatever the case may be.
0: Scott Clark here with the fourth Office Hours giveaway code. The code is CALVIN1509. That's CALVIN1509. Be one of the first 10 people to email us at, at WSCAL.edu, and we will send you two free downloads of the MP3s of our January 2009 faculty conference, CALVIN'S LEGACY. Be sure to send us your name, your postal address, and mention that you heard this episode and mention that the code Calvin1509 to win. Now back to our Office Hours interview.
1: But if you prepare deep um, and you prepare it as if you were giving an academic lecture, then you can not only use that in an academic setting, but you can also take that same material and trickle it out. Uh, into your adult Sunday school class and just trickle it out more slowly and more carefully. And so uh, often was the case, like, for example, with my Genesis book, that book was I researched it for uh, about a year or so as I was doing that research. And then uh, that was nine months worth of Sunday school material. But as I wrote those chapters, that was also grist for seminary lectures in the classroom. But that was also the material for the book that I wrote. And then when it came time to preach, as I was preaching in the evening through Genesis, uh, the first uh, three chapters, I think I preached about maybe a dozen sermons for which I never cracked a book on those uh, because I had already done research on it. And I would sit down and in 40 minutes or 45 minutes write out a sermon because I had studied all of the material on it already. And so I guess maybe the theory is, is try to take one stone and kill as many birds with it as you can. (laughs) Although that's such a violent image, I'm sure there's something else that can be found. Uh, but uh, you're, yeah,
0: you're definitely a multitasker, and, and sure, something tells me the folks at uh, is it Lewiston, New York, the folks in, at IBM, wherever they are, mm. uh, they would be happy with you. you so <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the the I can see the, there's a thread developing here, the the IBM approach to uh, sure. to teaching and and theology, um, although. Uh, all the despite all this talk of IBM, you mm-hmm. are a Macintosh man. Mm-hmm. I understand. That's right. Yes, so.
1: I I, uh, I won't go to making bricks without straw again. Back on my <laughs> PC. Sorry <laughs> to all those PC users out there. And I'm sure that the PCs are fine machines. But for me, I love my Mac. So, and, yeah. and
0: if your dad is listening.
1: Oh, he's, uh, uh, yeah, he, I remember he asked, I told him one time, I said I wanted to get one, and he, he cried out, uh, <laughs> what are you kidding? <laughs> you want me to lose my job? Uh, which back then was a distinct possibility. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but now I think he just, he kind of grumbles as his PC is booting up, and I said, hey, Dad, what you doing over there? and i said mine's already booted up it's it's been ready for the last uh, 30 seconds already what you doing he says, be quiet
0: it's a little <laughs> bit like driving a subaru uh, into a parking lot in detroit maybe right. maybe not the smartest thing you you, <laughs> you could do right One of the controversies that the Reformed churches have faced in uh, uh, the last 10, 15 years, and in some probably really over the last 30 years, is the justification controversy. Mm -hmm. And so you waded right into that with Mm -hmm. a a fairly uh, substantial book Mm -hmm. on justification. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk a little bit about that, what it is that that motivated you, and and what approach you took as you dealt with that issue.
1: Sure. I think that— One of the things that at least has marked my pastoral ministry in the past was the sense of obligation that as a a pastor in the church, that wherever there was a fire, I had an obligation to uh, help my congregation uh, understand the issues and then show them the truth. And so I did that on a number of controversies, but especially, as you said, with the issue of justification by faith alone, because as the Reformers, or as we hopefully have continued to say... Uh, would be that at the, the center of the gospel is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so I looked into those issues at first, just meaning to do a little bit of research here and there. And the more I researched, uh, the more I wrote, because in writing that often helps me personally just in clarifying my own thoughts. And I don't like having things without references, because if I need to go back and backtrack things, so I put in footnotes. And, and so in that respect, I think that writing has just become a, a part of who I am. Um, I owe that in part uh, to my Baptist education and that the degree that I sat for had um, a requirement that you had to write a 20 to 25-page research paper for every single class that you took. And so that meant by the end of my seminary education, I'd written some 20 research papers. And that helped me because it helped me get into a regular habit of writing, and that, I think, has continued. And so I carried that on into my justification research, and I I particularly wanted to show not only how justification works in terms of the order of salvation, the ordo salutis, but also how it's tied into redemptive history. Uh, I think that some people think that biblical and systematic theology are antithetical and can't be harmonized, but... uh, the way I see it, and I know that many others do, especially here at the seminaries, that no, they're not at all antithetical. Uh, they're found together in the Scriptures, and so it's just merely a question of uh, doing our best to echo what we see there in the Scriptures as we as we do our theology and as we explain the Scriptures. And so that that's really what I wanted to do, but also with a view to the challenges, whether it's from the Federal Vision or from the uh, new perspective on Paul, uh, engaging uh, those uh, those ideas and the theologians that stand behind them uh, to show that, no, no, the Reformed confessions have it right, uh, that we, you know, the justification by faith alone the reception of the imputed righteousness of Christ, his active obedience, his passive obedience, the forgiveness of sins that that is the gospel of Jesus christ, and that 's what paul taught that 's what the scriptures teach so that, that I think it's a very kind of maybe a shotgun blast answer to that question
0: no that's it 's good now, uh, having now that you 've said all this you 're not one of those uh, Lutherans <laughs> um, you, you know, if you 're going to be strong, some people think that if you 're strong on justification by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, you must necessarily. Be weak on the doctrine of sanctification, right. uh, and and so this leads me to to your your uh, most recent book, uh, mm-hmm. Rule of Love, Broken, mm-hmm. Fulfilled, and Applied. Mm-hmm. How does this volume relate to the previous volume on justification?
1: Right. Uh, one of the things that I found so often, and at least in my pastoral ministry, was the idea that. I think many in the Reformed Church understand justification by faith alone, but they're they're unsure as to how to connect that to the Christian life. They're unsure as to how to connect that to the doctrine of sanctification. And so, as I was doing a sermon series through the book of Exodus, naturally you come upon the Ten Commandments. And so, I really wanted them to see, uh, the people in the the congregation, really, the importance of the law, uh, not only in its... uh, Primarily, it's a second use in terms of our conviction of sin, but also in its third use uh, in terms of the guide for the Christian life. Uh, but more, most importantly, I wanted them to see that there is no third use of the law apart from Christ. And I think so often, I've even in reform circles and even in my own denomination, I've heard people in the name or ministers in the name of the third use of the law preach messages that made little to no, if any, reference to Christ. And I just thought that no, we we can't ever set Christ aside. That that's not an option for us. And so it's one thing to say, I believe in the third use of the law. It's another thing to say, I believe in the third use of the law, properly understood and and you know, properly with a Christ-centered focus. And so I think in that respect, I'm I'm for my church especially, I was desperately concerned about the doctrine of sanctification because um for that I, I saw so many people embrace the gospel in terms of their justification, and then very quickly turn to a very legalistic uh, or moralistic understanding of the doctrine of sanctification. And uh, I wanted to disabuse them of those ideas and to show them the rich of the depths of of what the scriptures teach in that respect. As as, as a footnote to that, uh, I've got not only that, but I'm working on a manuscript now that it's more or less the rough draft is finished on the doctrine of sanctification and the means of grace. It's a shorter one, uh, but uh, hopefully, uh, what uh, the rule of love in that book lacks in terms of its academic depth, this other manuscript will hopefully scratch that itch. If that's what I would want to say about that. Sure.
0: Well, how because this is, a, I think, a vital question. Sure. Uh, we we how do we keep before God's people uh, the abiding uh moral standard his his law mm-hmm. without tipping over uh into uh, legalism uh, the mm-hmm. the you know i think you know we uh, we would agree that there's a, a danger on two sides uh, mm-hmm. broadly in american evangelicalism uh there's a sort of nine commandment christianity and sure. and e- even beyond that there are people who talk as if the moral law isn't even in force anymore mm-hmm. and really do run the risk of genuine antinomianism. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, as as you've already confronted in your volume on justification, there are some who want to make our standing with God a matter mm-hmm. of, to some degree or other, law-keeping. Mm-hmm. So how do we balance these things and, and uh, do justice to the law but do justice to the gospel as well?
1: Sure. Uh, in one sense, I think my answer... Isn't going to be unique, but if anything, it's. It, 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 I guess repetition always is a good thing in pedagogy, and so I, I want to say we need to look at the depths of the law to show how how demanding it is, how exacting it is, as well as even the condemnation that falls upon uh, the wicked, as well as the condemnation that falls upon sin, so that we find uh, that we're incapable of fulfilling it on our own, so that we flee to the only one who has uh, fulfilled, and that is Christ, of course. Um, and so in that respect, it's it's keeping the demands of the law before us, but then more importantly, I think, keeping Christ especially before us. And then remembering, I think, two key passages of Scripture that always came to mind, things that I would always put before the church, is uh, Paul's statement in Galatians, uh, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, as well as uh, perhaps John 15, where Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, uh, then, in essence, my my life-giving uh, power will be in you through the Spirit, and you'll be a- enabled to, to love and to, and to do the things that the Lord commands. And so in that sense, it's only through Christ and keeping Christ front and center. Uh, I can't remember who said it, but if we focus upon our Savior, then we have to come to the conclusion that we are in desperate need of a Savior. If we could do it on our own, then we wouldn't need Christ. And so that means that we're incapable of doing it on our own. And so I think that that so, is so key to the doctrine of sanctification is, is centering upon Christ and seeking him through the means of grace, through the word and through sacrament, so that through uh, the means of grace, we would be further conformed to the image of Christ. So in that sense, I think many see the law as a source for sanctification. I want to say, no, Christ is our source for our sanctification, And again, that's nothing new. That's what our Reformed confessions teach, and more foundationally, that's what Scripture teaches.
0: And we, you know, obviously the law is the norm of our Christian life, and we live the Christian life, as you were suggesting, uh, focused on Christ, but also united to Christ by the Spirit uh, who indwells uh, us and thereby connecting us to Christ. And so He gives us power to live the Christian life Mm. and... um, and and it works, uh, you know. In, in the Heidelberg, we talk about you know uh, putting to death the old man and the making alive the new. And I know the Westminster Shorter sure uh, speaks in virtually identical categories. Well, yes. this has been uh, wonderful. It's uh, good for for me to be able to sit on and, and uh, get to know you a little bit better than That's terrific than uh, I, I already have. And it's great to have you here on campus. Uh, we're very excited. Uh, you're here and uh, we look forward to a long and and fruitful collaboration well that's it for this edition of office hours we'll be back next time for another episode you can listen to office hours online or subscribe and download it to your ipod or mp3 player go to wscal.edu and click on westminster audio for more information about this message or about westminster seminary california please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.